and we have it listed right here. So I'll just read verse 1 for you. It says, this is John chapter 2 and verse 1. And I want you to notice the setting when you read this, okay? It says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, when you look at that setting, first of all, notice there's a chronological setting. It says it takes, it takes place on the third day. Uh, how are we to interpret this phrase? What does third day mean? Third day from what? Third day after what? Because it just says on the third day there was a wedding. So we're going to have to do a little math. Okay? So I want you to look at verse 19. And this is where John comes along and, uh, and uh, he gives the testimony that he's not the Messiah. John chapter 1 and verse 19. Now we're going to call that, these are the events that happened on day 1. That's John 1.19, that's day 1, right? Okay, then look at verse 29. Look how it starts off. On the next day, do you see that? That's day 2. Then look at verse 35. It says, and again, the next day. So that's day three, right? And then look at verse 43. It says, and the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and that is day four. Now look at chapter two and verse one. On the third day, so, the third day after what? Most likely, it, ref it refers to the third day after Jesus meets Nathaniel. Now, he meets Nathaniel on day number four. Three days later would make this the seventh day, wouldn't it? And that's probably when this takes place. So, what we have here is that chapter one and the beginning of chapter two covers one week in the life of Jesus. So, my question is, why doesn't it say in chapter 2 and verse 1, on the seventh day? Why does it say the third day? That's a good question, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to know that? This has stumped a lot of people. I believe there's a hidden meaning here. John wants us to think. Put on our thinking caps. When I say to you, on the third day, what do you think? Oh, Jesus' resurrection. So instead of saying on the seventh day, he decides to take three days after the fourth day and say on the third day. Well, on the third day, what happened? Jesus was raised. It was a time of new beginnings. Okay? Watch this. Jesus' last miracle was on the third day. That's when he was raised from the dead. Guess when Jesus' first miracle was? On the third day. That's how John is doing it. He wants you to connect the first miracle with the last miracle. Something new is happening. And that's sort of like a hidden message that those who are in the know, and we happen to be in the know, at least we are now, uh, <laughs> this, this gives us some sort of insight into what John is going to say in this passage. It's a, it's a passage that, that has meaning at two levels, the surface level and sort of a deeper level. Okay? So that's the chronological setting. The social setting, of course, is the wedding which was a very elaborate affair in Bible times. It could last a week long. People would come and go uh, because you couldn't have a wedding, let's say, like we do. Well, the wedding is Saturday morning at 1, or Saturday afternoon at 1. 
Why couldn't you do that in Bible times? Anybody have any idea? Because most of 90 percent of the people were poor, and they worked from sun up to sun down, <laughs> and they were filthy. And so what they would do is they would. Uh, you know, some of the women, of course, didn't work, and they would come. They would have this thing for a week long, and people would just sort of come when they could, maybe during a lunch hour and an evening, and so on and so forth. So this is a very elaborate affair. Uh, wines flowing for a whole for a whole week. The geographical setting. It's very interesting. It says the wedding was held in Cana of Galilee. That's the home of Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel? The one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is his hometown. Now, what's really going to interest you is only in John's Gospel is the wedding and the turning of water into wine mentioned. It's not mentioned in Matthew Mark or Luke. Only John mentions it. Only John mentions the town Canaan of all the Gospels. You'll never find the word Canaan, Cana in Matthew. You'll never find it in Mark. You'll never find it in Luke. Only John mentions the town of Cana. So there's something unique going on here. Okay? So Jesus begins his ministry in this little town of Cana. Now, where would you think the Messiah would begin his ministry? In Jerusalem, the capital. But he decides to begin his ministry and perform his first miracle in this little backwater town where a lot of poor people and people on the margins live. Very insignificant place. Jesus' ministry is going to be mainly with insignificant people. People who are oppressed, people who have you know, no rights, people who need help. That's who Jesus ministers to. So it says this, so on the third day there was a wedding in Cana. Now watch this. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now you come find another unique thing about John's Gospel. He never mentions Mary's name in the entire Gospel. For John, Mary's not the focus of anything. She's not going to be given any special place like you'll find in the other Gospels. It just says the mother of Jesus was there. And that's how she's referred to in John's Gospel. And uh, that verb there, she was there, that means that she was there and she's still there. It sort of signifies that she's been at this wedding feast for a long time. Maybe when it started on day number one, she was there, and now it's day number three, day number four, day number five, and she's still there, which indicates something. She's probably a friend of the family, a close friend of the family, maybe helping out you know, serving food. She's there for quite a bit of time here. So that's sort of significant. Then we have the arrival of Jesus in verse 2. It says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they likely show up late. Maybe on day number 5. Or day number 6. Now the fact that Jesus and his disciples were invited says something, doesn't it? Who do you usually invite to your wedding? People you know. So that means Jesus probably knows this couple, or maybe the groom, or whatever. And his disciples all live in the Canaan area, so they probably know the family. These are not big cities. Don't think of a city of 10, 20, 30, 40,000. It's not like that. These are villages. You know, Bethlehem had less than 1,000 people in it. You can know everybody in the town. So, especially in those days when, you know, people were not mobile. They were, you know, they walked, they knew everybody in the town. 
And so here Jesus and his disciples, they show up much later, and we know this because of the context. What we're faced with in verse 3 is a crisis. Okay? And here it is. When they ran out of the wine, that's the dilemma. Okay? The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now this tells me that she's an insider. <laughs> she knows that they've run out of wine. There's a, an emergency situation. You don't see anybody else running around saying, they run out of wine, they run out of wine, they run out of wine. She's an insider. She knows what's going on. She's probably been serving. I imagine she whispers, Now that's a faux pas. You don't run out of wine at a wedding. What an embarrassment. Now remember that the groom is responsible for the reception. Not like today where the bride's parents are responsible. In the, in the Bible times it was if you had a boy, you were going to have to pay for this wedding reception. And if you were poor, when well, this people were probably poor, uh, sometimes even your guests would bring some food and wine along to help out. We were very poor. These people probably were poor, but anyway, can you imagine being the girl's father? If he finds out that they've run out of wine, what's he going to say? If you can't provide wine for your wedding, how are you going to take care of my daughter, you know, for the next 30 years? That's, that's not the way to enter a relationship with your in-laws on the wedding day by running out of wine. So only Mary knows her name's not mentioned, only the mother of Jesus knows, which means that she's an insider, she knows what's going on behind the scenes. Her husband is dead, her eldest son steps onto the scene, and she turns to him for help. And she says they run out of wine. Now look at Jesus' surprising response. Look in verse 4. He said to her, Woman, <laughs> Woman, <laughs> now that was not a term of disrespect in the first century. That's how men treated females. They called them women in the first century. <laughs> now we're recording this and people who watch this have no idea what, why we're laughing but our former president uh, Jim Ray Smith you know, called everybody woman and I want you to know you would have been a perfect citizen in the first century <laughs> but it's not the way a son would talk to his mother is He wouldn't say to his mother, woman. Now, he might say to a neighbor, woman, woman, but not to your mother. That shows you that Jesus is not giving her any special status. And John wants you to know that Jesus is not putting her on any kind of pedestal. And he just says to her, woman, and then notice what he does. He distances himself from the crisis in verse 4. He says, woman... What does your concern have to do with me? In other words, what's that have to do with me? It's not my business. 
Now, that's a way of distancing yourself. Uh, this is how the demons speak. You ever read about the demons when Jesus confronts the demons? They always say, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? You're trying to torment us before our time? There's a day when we will have something in common, and that'll be on Judgment Day when you torment us. But now, hey, it's not time for the torment. What are you, what are you doing? What are you getting involved in what we're doing here? So Jesus distanced himself, and he says, you know, oh, why are you bothering me? Now, why would he say this? Well, look at the reason in verse 4. He says, my hour has not yet come. Just like the demon said, you're tormenting us before a time. Our hour to be judged hasn't come. And Jesus is saying, look, you want me to do something? You want me to reveal my glory? You want me to do something magnificent? Uh, now is not the time. Jesus' glory will be revealed on the third day when he's raised from the dead. He said, you're asking me to do something before my time, my hour. That phrase, the hour, is used four times in John's Gospel. It always refers to his death and his resurrection. So he says, well, what do you want me to do about it? It's not time for me to reveal who I really am. And so... Uh, but she has this expectation. So Jesus basically is saying, she's saying, will you do something? And what's Jesus saying? No. No. He says, no, I'm not going to do anything. Well, she doesn't take no for an answer. And uh, look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> uh, now, you know that this is a Jewish mother. This is called chutzpah. You know, this is when somebody, your son says no, and guess what you say? Hey, well, he'll do it. Just do what he tells you. Yeah, that's how Jewish, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. That's how Jewish mothers respond. And so she knows he's going to do something, and uh, she just doesn't know what. So she tells the servants, ah, whatever he says, just do it. So here he is, put on the, on the spot. So you look at verse 6. It says, now there were six water pots. There were six water pots with water. Or is that verse seven? Verse six. Now there were six. There were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty to thirty gallons apiece. So now the narrator comes in and he says, "Let me interject something." After this discussion went on, uh, sitting over here were six water jars, and they each held about 30 gallons, about 180 gallons of water, and he explains what they were, and what does he say they were in verse 6? They were purification, they were according to the manner of the pure purification of the Jews. Why does he have to explain that? Because his audience in 95 AD who was reading this doesn't understand purification. That's finished. And so he has to explain it. And... Uh, it's going to be interesting that we have six water jars. And when you think about it, six days have just passed. And now it's the seventh day, and something new is going to happen. Okay? And uh, what's going to happen is that the old use of the water jars, purification of the hands, which symbol, symbolically represented what? 
This was a ritual representing purification of the heart that God had forgiven your sins. And this is how you showed it outwardly. You purified your hands and your feet and your body. These old water jars and their use as they were used previously for purification are now going to be used for something absolutely new. A new thing is happening here. So, we have these water jars and here's Jesus gives three commands. Now look what he gives. Number one, Verse 7, he said, fill the water jars with water. In other words, all the way to the brim. Now those water jars had water in them. Guess what kind of water was in them? Dirty water. <laughs> so now he says, I want you to fill those up. All Because people had been washing their hands. Every time you came into the wedding feast from the outside... You'd have to wash your hands, you'd have to wash your feet and all these things. And so he says, fill right up to the brim so there's not any room for any more water all the way up. That is command number one. And it says that they filled them up to the brim. Command number two, verse eight. He said to them, draw some out now. And that's a command. And we're going to see that a little later in chapter four with the woman at the well. He's going to draw water out of a well. Okay. So, that's command number two. He says to the servants, draw now, take some of the water out. Okay. Command number two. Command number three, in the middle of verse eight. And take it to the master of the feast. Take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast would be like the wedding coordinator. And uh, this was the person who was in charge of arranging the feast, probably tasting the food to make sure it's spoiled, tasting the wine before you would give it to anybody else to eat. This was the person who handled all those kinds of arrangements. And so he gives them three commands. Fill it up, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. At the end of verse 8 it says, and they took it. Okay. Verse 9. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made the wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. Somewhere between the pouring the water in, filling it up, now it's just filled with water. Ladle some of the water out. It's still filled with water. And between that point of ladling it out and bringing it to the master of the feast, who tastes it, it changes the wine just like that. That's when the miracle takes place. Between the ladling and the tasting, it changes from water to wine. Very interesting. Now, this, remember Mary says, whatever he says, do it. Jesus is going to meet a need, and guess how he meets it? in a way that you would have never suspected under any circumstance. If you were writing this story, you wouldn't have written it like that. You would think, well, he'd go out and say, well, here, I got an extra ten bucks. Go out and buy a couple bottles of wine. That's not how it is. This is not how he solves the problem. And You know, we've been praying for people, haven't we? And we ask God to do something, but we don't know how he's going to do it. He does it in the most unexpected ways. See? And this is his first miracle. And guess who knows this? Well, look what it says in verse 9. It says, only the servants who had drawn the wine knew. Mary had no idea what was happening. 
All she sees is, she may not even have seen this. She may have walked to the other end of the room. Who knows? But the disciples are there. They're not looking. But those servants, they lay it all out, and guess what? They're walking with it, and guess what it's doing? It's changing the one. The master doesn't know that it's changed of ceremonies. It says only the servants, in verse 9, knew. And so the master of ceremonies takes a taste of it, and look what happens. In verse 9, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning, meaning the beginning of the feast, sets out the good stuff, the good wine. And when the guests have drunk, well drunk, <laughs> when they've really drunk, <laughs> and their taste buds aren't as you know, particular, then comes out the inferior. You have kept the good wine unto now, exclamation point. And the bridegroom, it doesn't say this in the text, but the bridegroom says, I have. <laughs> he has no idea what's going on himself. Now, now I want you to notice the, the, the ordinary order of things. The ordinary order of things, you bring out the good stuff at the beginning, and then after they've drunk well, you bring out the inferior stuff. Here it's reversed. The inferior comes out first, and then it gives way to the superior. You see that? Now, I told you this is at two different levels. The meaning of this text is at two different levels. The inferior comes out first, the superior follows. Watch this. The law comes out first with purification jars under the law. And then the gospel and grace comes out next. Isn't that what 117 says? Remember John 117? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through what? Jesus Christ. One starts out first, but then guess what? It gives way to the superior. Do you remember what Moses' first miracle was? When God delivered the Jews from Pharaoh's Egypt? He turned water into blood. What's Jesus' first miracle? Turns water into wine. Moses' first miracle, he's going to deliver Israel from Egypt and establish the law. Christ is going to deliver the world from sin. And he gives us the gospel. He gives us grace. This is a, a living parable. Jesus is... This is happening. It really happened just like this. And on that level, we know what happened. There was a miracle. But guess what? He's acting out a parable that the law is giving way to grace. The law is giving way to the gospel. And to think that there's 180 gallons of this stuff. That's enough wine for a whole year for a family in those days. There's going to be a lot left over. When Jesus does something, there's always an abundance. It's better than you can ever imagine. It's superior to what you thought. It's superior to what you're used to. Does that make sense? So look at verse 11. It says, This was the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. 
Now, this is the first of the signs. Now, signs point to something, don't they? This sign is pointing to something. This miracle points to something. And it's that the old system is giving way to the new system. That's why it's always two levels. There's two levels in this particular story. Something that happened, and it changed somebody's life, didn't ruin the, the wedding feast. And the second thing, but the sign points to something, that the old system is giving way to the new. The old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. And then look what it says at the end of verse 11. It's very interesting. It says, and his disciples believed in him. It doesn't say the master of ceremonies believed in him. It doesn't say the bridegroom believed in him. It doesn't say Mary believed in him. It doesn't say anybody else believed in him. It only says his disciples believed in him. Which, remember I told you chapter 1 is a preface, a foreword to the rest of the book. He came unto his own, right? He came unto his own. And uh, his own received him not, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. And so, but as many as did believe in him, see, and uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, John says in John 1.14. We beheld his glory. And guess what? The first time they beheld his glory was right here in chapter 2. You know, the gospel of John, I want you to keep your, your finger here, but I'm going to just turn you to John 20. I usually, when I'm going through a, the Gospel of John and studying the Gospel of John, I usually start off with John 20. But today we're going to look at it toward the end of the lesson. Now John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31 give us a purpose for the book and especially about the, for the signs. Throughout John's Gospel, there are seven major signs that he tells about. And John 20, verse 30 says this, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these, these seven are written. That you, who would that be? That would be his readers. That include us, plus his first century audience. These things are written, I've written these things about these signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The reason John writes about these signs, and this is the first one, is that those who read about this in 95 AD, or whether it's in the 21st century, will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find eternal life. Everybody at this wedding feast drank the wine that had been transformed from water, but not everyone believed on it. Everyone was a recipient of the miracle. Everyone benefited from the miracle. It's like common grace. They're just rain. God gives us rain and falls upon the just and the unjust, doesn't it? But there are some people that recognize that it's God that gives the rain, and they believe on it. And so these signs are given that those of us who read it will say, this is magnificent. He indeed is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we will put our faith in Him, we'll believe upon Him, and as a result we'll have eternal life. So a miracle occurs, but 
only the servants, and I guess probably the disciples, finally realize that it's a miracle. Most of the people don't. Now go back and look. Finish, we'll finish this chapter. And this sort of drives the point home in John 2 and verse 12. The disciples believed on him. Now look at verse 12. We're introduced to a new crowd here. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Now this is going to be his headquarters. Uh, Jesus will eventually settle in Capernaum, and that from Capernaum he will launch out to his ministry. And it says, he, he didn't only go by himself, his mother, who else? His brothers. They were at that wedding. The whole family was at the wedding. Here's his brothers and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. So here the, the brothers are introduced, but guess what? There's no indication that the brothers believe on Jesus until when? Does anybody know when? After the resurrection. And that's when James believes on him, when he sees the resurrected Jesus. We know Jude, who writes the book of Jude, believes on Jesus. And we know Mary believes on Jesus. She's in the upper room with the 120. When the Holy Spirit falls, they all speak in tongues. So here we're introduced to the brothers, but there's no indication at this point that the brothers are believers. So they go to Capernaum, it says, in the end of verse 12 it says, they did not stay there. Uh, why not? Because in verse 13, guess what is at hand? The Passover. And they're going to go from Galilee, 80 miles south, within a few days, down to the Passover, where Jesus has some business to attend to. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. We thank you that you are a God that does things in an unexpected way, better than we could. We thank you you're a God of abundance. We thank you that you're a God who has shown your glory through these miracles and the resurrection. And that those of us who are the readers of this text can believe on you and have eternal life. Oh Lord, if there's any here who have not believed, May at this moment they say, Oh Lord, I surrender to you. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. I give my life to you. Lord, give me eternal life. Just the way you turned water into wine, you can turn death into life. You can turn a sinner into a saint. Oh Lord, this is what we pray this day. Amen.